Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yeah, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 225. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you. And Downtown brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, well, coming up on the program uh, this week, uh, we'll talk music in the second half. Our friend, uh, writer and author Colin Fleming will uh, discuss with us the Beach Boys and their landmark smile sessions of the 1960s. Up first, though, we, uh, we talk about animals and the ways they communicate. Our conversation with veterinarian and author Dr. Gabby Wild. She's got a brand new book out published by National Geographic Kids called How to Speak Animal. A Guide to Learning How Animals Communicate. Let's see if we can learn something here with Dr. Gabby Wild. This is such a wonderful book. Uh, I've got an eight-year-old son. He was loving it, too, as uh, we took a look at it. And uh, do all animals, let's start with this uh, fairly broad question, do all animals communicate in some way? Absolutely, they do. And communication, as you are a testament to how important it is in our species, vital in all other species that need to speak with others. So unless you're like an amoeba that can, you know, sexually divide, um, you know, by itself, dividing its body, um, it's even those have forms of communication with other little amoebas. But in every species, one has to survive and one has to reproduce in order to allow that species to perpetuate. And without the ability to communicate, whether it's to actually find your mate or to tell someone off, you <laughs> have to have a way to say it. And we, we divided the book by the forms of communication in which most animals speak, if you will. And that would be tactile, so how you touch or interact in, in the form of actual using, using your appendages. Um, one would be auditory. So that's what everybody is doing right now as they as they listen to all this. And then, of course, visual. No one sees that I'm counting on my fingers right now, but I'm <laughs> counting on my fingers. And then the fourth would be chemical. So, for example, smelling chemicals or even, if you will, um, pheromones would be a, another type of chemical. So we, we divided it in those kinds of ways. If one gets more nitty-gritty, it's possible. But we wanted to, if you will, keep it simple, stupid, the KISS principle. I love sloths, and I, I love them more now that I've learned from your book uh, the unique way that they communicate. Absolutely. I um, I find it so amazing that, you know, they go to the bathroom pretty much once a week, every seven to eight days. But when a female needs to find her male, she's going to go down much more frequently to actually urinate, maybe sometimes do other things, to just leave a little bit of a pheromone to say, hey, I, I'm i ready to have a baby and come find me. And it's, it's really quite amazing how they, they're able to communicate in, in that fashion. So she really speeds up so she can make this happen and have cute sloth babies. <laughs> uh, also, because we have a, a lot of them here in Maine, uh, fascinating to learn more about the way moose communicate. Very true. What about it do you find most interesting? Um, well, that the, they do it in such a what would appear to us to be a very subtle way. 
I would agree. Sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle in the usage of their antlers. Right. And sometimes the females find those antlers extra vavum, and, and that can dictate their ability to mate, you know, because they're like, oh, wow, I like your antlers. But at the same time, there's a balancing act between are those antlers, you know, a- appropriately sized for your success, or are they too large? And we actually found that in other species, that, such as those that have actually gone extinct, that sometimes having too much of, of antlers, like the Irish, the Irish elk, it was actually deleterious to have too big of antlers, yet the females like them so much. But those big, big antlers for us humans were very attractive for our hunting purposes. So everything, you know, comes in a, in a sense of balance. And um, it's, it's always interesting to see how humans can come into that balance, if you, if you will. We're talking with Dr. Gabby Wild on downtown. Well, I, as someone who communicates for a living, I find all forms of communication particularly beautiful. But, but what the sea star, the starfish does, seems to me to be especially beautiful. I agree with you. And it, it's funny you mention this specific species. So they utilize fluorescence and they have their eyes basically at the end of their tentacles. And I get the question a lot, which animal is the smartest? Which one communicates the best or has the highest IQ? And I like to point out the starfish because people say all of these interesting questions, but if we're basing IQ off of a human sliding scale of IQ, then of course an animal like the starfish is going to seem pretty stupid because they can't hear us or do these vision tests. But I dare say if we started to create a starfish IQ, we would fail miserably. In fact, we would die at the depth that they survive. So IQ and how animals communicate work perfectly well for them and may not work perfectly well for us because we're not them. So I agree with you. I love using the starfish as this example. Now, speaking of, uh, of intelligence among animals, I was fascinated to learn about ladybugs and the fact that uh, they have learned over generations to play dead to save themselves. Yes, they have learned from generations to play dead. And one of the facts that a lot of the kids like, so of course you're, you're talking also about they can also perform diapause altogether, but one of the facts that kids really like is when they are being attacked, for example, they, quote-unquote, squirt green goo from their from their knees, literally right around their knee. And indeed they do, and it, it's that, I don't know if you've ever had the experience I have, it smells dreadful, and actually if you get it in your mouth, it tastes even more dreadful. Um, but it's, it's very interesting and actually just, ugh. For that reason alone, I extra respect them because I don't want to scare them <laughs> to get the, the, the juices all over me. Also fascinating to uh, read about the what you call a dance language that honeybees use to communicate. I think honeybees are positively mathematical geniuses. So they have a variety of dances, the most famous one called the waggle dance. And what happens is these ladies go out and they, let's suppose they find the perfect patch of flowers. They need to communicate to their whole family. Hey, dude, with death, this is, <laughs> this is where we got to go. And what they do is they come back from their little voyage of finding flowers. And they all stand around this, this bee and they 
calculate using trigonometry from her dance exactly the location of that flower. And they have a variety of other dances that they do that, that are listed in the book, but it's absolutely brilliant how they're able to watch her dance and somehow calculate exactly where to find the nectar. It's unbelievable. Now, do most animals either want to communicate with humans or at least have an understanding of, of what we're trying to communicate? I think the only ones that want to communicate with humans are dogs, are cats when they want you to open up their food <laughs> or leave them alone, and, and some other domestic animals when they're hungry. But other species, it's, a, it's an interesting question. If they're not domesticated animals, I don't really think they wish to communicate unless they're, of course, housed in a zoo and, and their, you know, their lives depend upon human interaction for survival. But other than that, these wild beasts really want to live in the wild and, and, and not have to do that. I think some of them have become habituated. So, for example, they've done studies with dolphins, and those researchers obviously have dolphins have a wonderful rapport with people when they start working. They, they love people for some reason, even without um, being forced to do research. It's, it's actually very interesting because these are not domesticated species that like evolved with us for any reason. So I find that actually very, very interesting how they can be so friendly with us. Not always, not always, but often. Well, it was interesting, too, to read about how humans are trying to use sign language to communicate better with dolphins. Yes, yes, we have these whistling devices that they've learned that the different notes, different pitches mean different things. And, you know, they'll go in, let's say you used one that said seaweed, they know what that means. So they become, they become um, if you will, they learned the word that we've invest, invented that's convenient for their hearing that um, is precisely what, what a word means. So they've come to do that, which is similar to how they, if you will, speak to one another. They have names for one another. They have different pitches for how they, they communicate. They're exceptionally intelligent. Uh, we've created actually sign language, or I shouldn't say we've created that, we've used sign language, American ASL, um, for communicating between humans and chimps gorillas and bonobos and those were studies that started in the 60s i don't think ayakuk committees today would would fly as much as what was going on in the 60s and they were like living in the scientists home but that being said it did provide a very unique perspective as to how if you will, how these animals sort of think and it stirred a lot of conversations and a lot of a lot of debate as to what is and I'm going to use a scary word now in the animal communication world, what is language? What defines it? And it's a very touchy subject, but they were trying to see, can, can these animals speak human language? And I'll allow you guys to do your research to determine what you think. However, I would say, for example, they were able to come up with their own words. So, for example, the gorilla cocoa, I'm not sure if you've heard of this incredible mm. oh, girl. Yes. She was able to see that her, her, I want to say the word handler, but I want to say really her friend, was wearing a ring. And they were talking in ASL together. And Coco wanted to 
talk about how she liked to ring, but she couldn't think of the word because she didn't know it. However, she knew the word finger and she knew the word bracelet. So she coined the word, I like your finger bracelet. And if that's not a unique way in which you're interpreting words, I, I don't know what is because I have a toddler and I see him doing the same thing. So it's really, really quite incredible what animals are able to come up with and how we've been able to use our own ways of communicating to better understand them. And I would say that's the goal, is to understand them, not to hurt them, but to, in some ways, help them. Now, I, I like to think my dog is pretty smart, but, but probably she's average in the canine world. But it seems to me, at least, that she recognizes a number of words. Is it the actual words she's understanding, or is it a combination of the inflection, body movements, and things like that? Absolutely a combination. Dogs have evolved to read us and understand exactly what we like. So you can say in a really angry voice, you're the cutest thing in the world, and she'll put her tail between her legs mm. because she thinks she's in trouble. But if you say, oh, you're the cutest thing in the world, she thinks it's wonderful, and it is wonderful. Or if you even say in a high pitch voice, stupid, ugly thing, she's still very, very happy. <laughs> so, so, but, but that stated, there are commands that they have learned. So I've actually worked, for example, with police dogs. And I've had to learn how to say their commands in German. Wow. <laughs> even even um, elephants that I have worked with, I have to remember which country I'm in and be able to speak to them in using the commands of that native language, whether it's Thai, you know, you have to be able to understand exactly Japanese. You have to be able to utilize the correct language because they know what that word means, what it represents. Well, it is a wonderful book. Uh, kids will absolutely love it. I'm no kid, but I sure enjoyed it as well. It's a terrific How to Speak Animal, a guide to learning how animals communicate. Dr. Gabby Wild, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope you stay wild. That's Dr. Gabby Wild here on Downtown. Her book is called How to Speak Animal, a guide to learning how animals communicate. Take a little break, and when we come back, we discuss the Beach Boys' smile sessions with author Colin Fleming. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I've been in this town so long and back in the city. I've been taken for a lost and gone, and I've known for a long, long time. Fell in love years ago with an innocent girl from the Spanish and Indian home of the heroes and Beach Boys from the Smile Sessions with Heroes and Villains. We had a great conversation recently with our friend, uh, author Colin Fleming, talking about those sessions and their impact on pop music. Today, we're talking about uh, the Beach Boys, who uh, often get short shrift, I think, compared to some of the other great bands of the 60s. And, and yeah, there was the surf music, but there was so much more than that to them. And, and perhaps um, no better place to explore that than in talking about 
the most famous unfinished album of the rock and roll era that eventually did get finished, Smile. Was there ever really any surf music from the Beach Boys, though? I know people say that, and it could be in the lyrics, but I think of surf music as uh, something that's happening instrumentally and in terms of the compositions. It's almost like a novelty kind of writing. And the Beach Boys, their early singles, I mean, right from the start, you can connect a line between what they were doing then, Pet Sounds, Smile, especially, I think, because Smile was this album that was meant to be this uh, grand representation of America Mm. and nature, and it had a Mark Twain quality and a Thoreau quality, but with actual smiling and joyousness and childlike simplicity and wonder and health food and all of that kind of uh, all-American kick. So I think there's actually uh, quite a bit of commonality between the early surf singles and at least the ethos with what became the Smile Project. And what made it unique, among other things, certainly the influence of our friend Van Dyke Parks, who's been on with us I don't know, six or seven times through the years. He served primarily as Brian Wilson's lyricist on the project and certainly, I think, had Brian thinking about bigger things than what he normally wrote about. Van Dyke Parks was to the Beach Boys as Robert Hunter was to the Grateful Dead, right? And it's interesting, Mm. like Jerry Garcia and Hunter partnered up and Brian Wilson and Van Dyke Parks partnered up because at the same time that I'm regaling those early surfer singles, you wouldn't expect that you're going to get to this point of smile where it's as experimental as music gets. It's as out there as Captain Beefheart or mm. really Zappa, whoever else that you you want to name. You wouldn't think that this unit would be capable of that, which isn't a knock on them. It just wasn't what they what they did. But Brian Wilson, he did something kind of similar to what Paul McCartney was doing, whereas Paul McCartney didn't fall out from his band and create his own sort of private life the way that Brian Wilson did. But he wasn't hanging around with them as much in terms of going by McCartney. He would be at these art openings and sort of like man about town, intellectual gadfly. And Brian Wilson was doing the West Coast American version of that. He was hanging out with different people than than his brothers and his bandmates and getting these different experiences and influences and, and doing what the Jefferson Airplane were later to espouse and that whole feed your head routine. So he was amenable and open to everything. And, and that's really reflected in certainly the project that would smile. And it's a pretty rapid change from let's go surfing now, everybody's learning how, to four years later, columnated ruins, uh, ruins domino. <laughs> well, let's, sure. It, let's go surfing. I mean, it was always more Chuck Berry than it was like this affinity for a subgenre. And so I was listening to, like, I was in a cafe recently, and Help Me Rhonda came on. You listen to the harmonies of Help Me Rhonda, and no one makes the connection between the two. There are a lot, there's a lot in common with the harmonies on on Smile. Sometimes that's sort of like the secret weapon that the Beach Boys had. They could be doing something really out there that might not seem what you'd be into. And the harmonies, just by dint of being there, 
are going to save it or make you open to what they're doing. In other words, like a Beach Boys song in this period can only be so bad. It's not actually bad, but it can only be so unpalatable because of what they're doing vocally. And so we get to this album, and in a way, the way it eventually came together, this big box set in 2011 that came out on Halloween that year, there really was a focus to the concept. It was new agey in a way, but it had a lot of that Mark Twain vibe to it. Like Orson Welles was talking with Peter Bogdanovich, and Wells, like myself, was a huge fan of these novels by Booth Tarkington called Penrod and Seventeen, the two of the funniest books ever written. And Bogdanovich had read them, and, and he agreed. He said, "But how come they don't they don't endure like like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer?" And, and Wells said, "Because this was this overgrown kind of primordial early republic, and so it stood outside of of time in a way." And Thoreau wrote that way himself, but without the humor. And that's what was happening on Smile. And there's actually a lot of humor on this on this record. Now, it's not like side-splitting guffaws, but there is a whimsy to it that you get in, in hardly any pop music, let alone Beach Boys pop music. Yeah, and, and you find it in songs like... You know, vegetables and and do you like worms? And and when you mention those harmonies too, and, and sometimes people think of Smile as being a very different sound than other Beach Boys records, and yet I, I don't know that there are better harmonies in many Beach Boys recordings than what you get on the only song from the album that got much radio airplay: "Heroes and Villains." And "Heroes and Villains" was one of those would-be masterworks that never caught on as a masterwork. And I think it was deliberate, but the production was somewhat boxy. It was like this, uh, almost like this process sound. It was meant as this sort of riff on, on movies and Westerns of all things and having heroes and villains. And if you listen to the, the outtakes when they're trying to get this song right, uh, is some of the most fascinating outtake material that we have by anybody. The way that, that that riff keeps coming back over and over and over again, and even between songs, it it's like it's stalking you. It's it's trailing you, and it's going to catch up with you, but but in a good way. And so I think you were also in this period having disappointments to deal with. And one thing I've learned in life is that people do not handle disappointment well. And if something doesn't go exactly the way they want it to go, they can be cooked, especially if they're used to having things going the way they want them to go. So I think when some of these things weren't hitting as Brian Wilson wanted them to, he was beginning to doubt himself, doubt the project, doubt the album, and he, was, uh, he had already checked out in a way before with retreating from the band to come up with a lot of this stuff and hang, hang out with his new writing partner. But I think he was also withdrawing when this wasn't coming to fruition the way he wanted it to. And there's been some revisionist history, largely from Mike Love, who now says, oh, no, I liked I liked that music. I loved everything on, on Pet Sounds. But it's, it's clear that uh, he wasn't crazy about the sound because it wasn't the formula that had been successful. And, and that antipathy didn't start 
with smile, but it went back to some of what he heard on Pet Sounds, which was often written with other lyricists of people like Tony Asher and others. I can understand why someone might feel that way about about Pet Sounds. It it is it's not a monochromatic mood, but it's a bit of a downer. It's not an uplifter. And something doesn't have to be like an all-out uplifter. But me personally, I like I like a range. I like the sort of like full panoply of of moods. And we get more moods on Smile than I think we do on Pet Sounds. But the Beach Boys, it's like one of the myths about them was there never really was a formula. And that becomes more obvious as we get deeper into the 1960s because they were mixing it up a lot and in short periods of time the way that the Beatles would or the Dylan would because you're going to have like the sort of aborted remainder the salvage job from these sessions come out on Smiley Smile, and that's in, what, September of 67. Right. And then they turn around in December, like a week before Christmas, and give you Wild Honey. That's a lot different. Wild, I mean, and think about that. I love the idea of, like, that much product coming out. I'm someone who wants to have six books come out a year, so you're doing two albums inside of three months, and everything is kind of bunched up with pet sound and smile and good vibrations, which is like part of this project in the same way that, oh, Strawberry Fields Forever is part of the Sgt. Pepper project. Like it's, it's in that grouping, even though it doesn't turn up on that album, but it, it could have. And so uh, people overlooked that because good vibrations was the success that Heroes and Villains wasn't. And they use the same kind of approach to, to, to cutting up sound, pre-existing sound, and assembling the music that way, which is also what Miles Davis would do on In a Silent Way. I mean, these were radical innovators, especially with Brian Wilson spearheading everything, but it was always couched in that melody, and it wasn't like trying to accept, I don't know, Ornette Coleman's free jazz. So... When Mike Love has an issue with it, it still has a lot of the Beach Boy hallmarks. Like, if you love the early stuff, you wouldn't listen to Smile and be like, oh, no, it's like a totally different band. You'd be like, oh, no, this is different, but it's clearly by the same people at a different part of their of their journey, their career, whatever you want to call it. And as you said, too, there are so many different sounds within this album, from you know, fun, upbeat songs to one of the best love songs the Beach Boys ever did uh, in Wonderful to Surf's Up, which might be the most introspective song other than In My Room. Right. And In My Room was, a, I think that was one of those songs that someone like John Lennon would have heard. And that would have surprised him that he could, you could write something that introspective, even if you were a pop star. And Surf's Up is the Beach Boys. It's there whatever you want to call it, a day in the life. And it's it, thematically, even like plot-wise, it has a lot in common with, with the Who's Tommy, like the entire thing, but it's boiled down because that's what Brian Wilson could do. He could take these big ideas, these big concepts, and he could make them these these capsules is how he would describe them when he talked about like writing a symphony 
the teen symphony for God. So Surf's Up is this highly metaphysical affair that begins with uh, nods to Maupassant and Edgar Allan Poe. And if you had just sort of like done the jump in time, sometimes I imagine like doing the jump in time. Like if you'd done the jump in time, say from 2009 to 2022, and you looked on Twitter that day and you saw that Tom Brady was picked as the best player in the NFL among his peers, you'd be like, wait, what? How is that possible? Have all the rules of the world changed? You could kind of do that with, with the Beach Boys, with something like Surf's Up, because there is nothing to suggest that they're going to do anything like that. And so you have like this lost album, but Surf's Up is the lost song. And if you wanted to pick a best Beach Boys song ever, I'm not saying the most emblematic Beach Boys song, Surf's Up would be a real contender for me. One of the most interesting tracks on the album of The Elements, which also <laughs> apparently from what we know may have uh, tied in to what was going on in, in poor Brian Wilson's head at the time when they were recording the fire section of The Elements, and he was convinced that uh, that they were coming after him, that people were coming for his tapes, and it all went south in a hurry. It did, but if you listen to the session tapes, they remind me a lot of those uh, Grateful Dead studio recordings, the sessions that we've talked about from 1970, where the dead had this reputation as, as being like drugged out slackers and all that stuff. And you listen to them in the studio, Jerry Garcia really cracking the whip. He was driving those guys. And you could tell from just how he talked, the little snippets of advice or the demands he'd make that he knew music like every which way. He was in command of all of that, well, whatever else he might have been doing in his life. And Brian Wilson's the same way here. He is uh, stopping and starting the musicians throughout. He is giving commands, and he's always correct. It's, it's interesting because you can hear how well he hears what is happening that the other people don't hear. Mm. I remember watching David Ortiz during the 2000s, 13 World Series, and he would he'd take a pitch. It's the only example I can think of like this, and you could just see how well he was seeing the ball at like 688 in that series or whatever, but he, how well he was seeing the ball even when he didn't swing. I feel like that's how Brian Wilson was when he was hearing this stuff. He's saying like a little bit faster, and they do it just a little bit faster, and it makes all the difference, and it really like reinforces that that idea of this guy's musical brilliance. And I think like in terms of the rock musicians, it was a brilliance that a, a, a certain kind of musical brilliance that really he had and Paul McCartney had and no one else, which isn't to say that they were the best, but for this type of, of know-how of natural musicality. And then the idea was that he was trying to outdo the Beatles. They were throwing haymakers and going back and forth. But I don't think it was ever really that way for Brian Wilson. I think that he was progressing and growing in a way, and he wanted to take his bandmates with him. And if he was competing against anything, it was what he last did. But I don't even think he was doing that. I think when you get so in a zone with what you're doing as an artist, that all that matters is what you're working on then and there. And so this was like an awfully big then and there for him. But the way it's been assembled now 
and the way that we can listen to it now, it it sort of delivers on that mythological promise that was around for so long, so many decades even. I remember we had the great Hal Blaine on the show a few years back, and he told us about the, those sessions and how, and not just those, but other Beach Boys sessions, and, and how odd it was that this young guy would come in to this room full of session players who did hundreds and hundreds of sessions every year, or some of the classical musicians he brought in for the smile sessions, and, and they would roll their eyes at first when he would make a suggestion, and then they'd listen to the playback and nod their heads and say, wow, he was right, and he heard that all in his head. He's a super young guy. I mean, like you said, he's been on, Brian Wilson's been on been on this show, and uh, so obviously this is going quite a ways back in time gives you an idea of, of how, how young he was. I mean, these guys weren't even like 35. No. These, they, were, they were much younger than that. And, I mean, think about the Beatles. When the Beatles broke up, they, these were guys still in their 20s. I think that's, that's lost on people. So you also would have had the reputation of being a rock and roller or a pop artist or whatever. And, and the shift is happening around this time, around like 1966, 1967, that you can be a serious musician as someone in the Beach Boys. You had that sort of like silly name. You were a Beatle or whatever. But like there's that shift from 65 to to 66. And, and Brian Wilson is helping that shift come about. But he reminds me as, as a musician, he reminds me a lot of Mozart. Because Mozart, he had a similar ear to Brian Wilson where uh, he would write certain parts on certain instruments just because of who was playing them. And the only way you can do that is if you really understand their their core sound. And the Beach Boys had these session musicians, but they were so musical themselves. Like it's it's like the Monkees. The Monkees became pretty musical. Mm. Like you just like thought it was these guys who answered this ad, but they were doing their own concept albums. Like come. 1968 and around that time they weren't just banging around back there and if you could sing like the beach boys could sing do those kind of harmonies that's not just like we have good voices there's a depth of musical knowledge that i think is sometimes passed over with the rest of the band members because of what brian wilson was i mean this is very much a group project now he's leading this group project but he couldn't have done this group project with any other people than the other Beach Boys. What's interesting, too, is that after this, what, almost 40 years of an unfinished opus, finally, Brian, with uh, with a lot of help from his, his great backup band, uh, the guys in the Wonderments, came up with his own version. And I think, oh, four, uh, Brian Wilson presents Smile. I had a chance to see them do it live, which was absolutely stunning. And then that was really the template that they used to put together the, the larger Smile Sessions in 2011. You listen to the box set, and uh, you almost sort of wonder, without being glib, it's like, what's the problem here? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Why couldn't we just put this out? It seems like it works really well. Like, it wasn't that, it wasn't that tricky after all. And, and if people don't know, the way the box set is, there are different versions of it, but if you get like the whole shebang or listen to the whole shebang, you, you get like sort of a, a, a representative version, a stab at the album, which works as an album. But then you get all of these different outtakes and session tapes. And the session tapes, like the, the two biggest ones are built around 
it's just them doing heroes and villains and trying to get these parts right over and over and over again, and also good vibrations. And so you can listen to those the way someone might listen to the composition tape and all of the different outtakes for the Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever. I find that fascinating because you get the music on display in almost like this accompanying narrative, like a spoken word part of what the intentions are. So like if you really like how sounds are put together and achieved and songs are written and the collaborative process and also just you sticking to your vision and telling people what to do, because that's a big thing that you mentioned when you come in and you say, this is what I want. Other people are going to think that's not going to work or I know best. (laughs) Such is life. And if you're the person who knows and believes, you know, you have to impart that knowledge to others and you can't back down from what you believe in. So Brian Wilson had these demons and these paranoias and all this stuff going on. But when he was there in the studio making this music, he was, he was never backing down. He had this vision that he was, he was true to. And it was a complex ver- vision and a very American vision, a kind of from Plymouth Rock to Hawaii vision. But when you think of like the great artistic statements of this country, we have those Twain novels, we have the Thoreau's journals, and we have things like the smile sessions, really. And, and Van Dyke Parks often said his inspiration was Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Did the smile sessions approach or even surpass that level of greatness? Oh, it's like Rhapsody in Blue. Like, like that's uh, that's the balloon without air in your in your hand, and you blow it up in your with your mouth into like something like globular. Th- that's going to be smile. So yes, I, I think there's a real conscious connection between works of music like that, like Porgy and Bess. Like, I think of that as a kind of jazzy, the way Miles Davis is, a very jazzy kind of, like, proto-smile. So I think, like, that's that's the side of the field that we're on. It's it's in that group. And, and, And it can hang with works of art like that. Now, it doesn't have their concision, but... What does that mean? I mean, it's in that Moby Dick group. Moby Dick doesn't have the concision, and so much is going into Moby Dick. And and I like I like that kind of thing. I like that sort of like uh, all leave it all on the ice approach to art making. And Brian Wilson's eighty now. He's still out there touring. And I know, you know there are some people that say, "Well, it, you, Brian." The voice isn't what it used to be. Well, whose is at 80? There are only a few Tony Bennett's out there, only one Tony Bennett and a few that can come close to that. But I love the fact, whether it's Brian Wilson or McCartney or any others, I love the fact that you can see these brilliant artists who are so much more than just singers, and they're still out there performing and doing their craft for us to see. Keep it going as long as you can. Oh, I agree. Although I wouldn't go, if you gave me a free ticket to go see Paul McCartney, I, I have no need to experience that. Now I feel like oftentimes for people it's a night out; they're going to babysitter, and no matter what happens up on the stage, they're going to be happy. It's kind of like wine drunk karaoke for them. And so I sometimes see someone come back from like a show by the Who. It's not really the Who, right? It's these two guys. And they've never been better. And someone sort of like provides musical analysis that you can 
back up by listening to whatever on YouTube. And that person just gets attacked because a lot of times people want this nostalgia kind of thing. But the idea of being a certain age and still doing what you want to do because you're able to and it's an outlet for you. I always shame my mom, for instance. It's useful for me that way because she's she's 75. And she'll be like, I'm so tired. I'm just so tired today. I'm like, McCartney's out there for two and a half hours. He's moving <laughs> around. They don't bring him out of chair and he sits down. He's in Milwaukee. He's in Philadelphia. So, really, I, I think you can handle this today. And, like, you read, Dylan's older than I would go see Dylan. But for the most part, for me, like, I, I saw McCartney in, like, 93. And I saw the Stones in 94. That was enough. I would just listen to, like, the Stones, uh, the the tape of them playing Leeds in 1971. But I definitely salute people out there doing that. And I'd be there if they were still doing it, which to me was like this high creative and effective level. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's changed sort of like the whole paradigm of age. People like this doing what they're doing because Back in the day, the only people who did this was like some old blues musician who was in a rocking chair <laughs> right. on the porch. And, and now it's these guys. And it's not just like one of these guys. They're all sort of taking up this baton, the Stones. It's such an athletic show. And, and The Who and, and, and Kiss, the, the hottest rock and roll band in the land. You love them, Kimball. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> uh, Carrie, by the way, the... Carrie refers to The Who as Who's Left. <laughs> it's uh it depresses me when i read people's accounts because they're so happy with what they heard and i know like if you listen to the who in in 1982 they didn't have it then it like it was gone and so that was quite a while ago and uh, to, i'm always about standards and really must we just accept this and say it's great simply because it's what available and it concerns me that when people can't think or listen critically because that's not to be a killjoy i think it takes away from our efficacy as listeners when we're listening to something like this that really pulls out our listening talents and counts on our listening talents for us to get the most from it that we can with this whole smile back in the day 1966 67 project but uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's super cool that those people are out there and and setting an example to uh, to get off your ass and go for stuff. There you go. Well, if you haven't listened, find the Smile Sessions and, and check out an incredible piece of American music. Colin, we thank you as always. All right, sounds good. Colin Fleming discussing the Beach Boys Smile Sessions here on Downtown. Our thanks to Colin. Thanks to Dr. Gabby Wild as well, and to you for joining us this week. Downtown brought to you. Every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.